bless his name when the day is done for he has redeemed me and called me Unmerited favor of God has been extended to me. The marvelous grace of my to be free.
still I live in a foreign land Oh, but now I'm free according to redemption's plan And soon I'll join the road in white The redeemed will sing a song That's hard to beat, isn't it? If you weren't blessed then, you might as well leave because there's nothing I'm going to say going to do anything for you. That was wonderful. Amen, amen. Well, if you'd open your Bible, the book of Romans chapter 5, and you figured out maybe already our theme today is the grace of God. In fact, the message this morning is the abounding grace of God, Romans 5. Romans chapter 5 <clears throat> And uh, won't you stand with me as we read verse 20 and 21. It's a short passage, a short text. I read the entire last portion of the chapter last week. So we'll all read it good and loud together. Let's just be a great verbal choir here. What do you say? Verse 20, 
Romans chapter 5, reading God's word with me. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And Heavenly Father, will you guide and direct what I say today, and may the Spirit of God come and do His work. And I pray that people will really listen, not just partially listen, listen half-heartedly, but they will listen with a thirsty heart. And I pray in Jesus' name these things. Amen. You may be seated. I think this is message number 36 or 7, as I have been going through the book of Romans. As I told you from the beginning, the Romans I consider to be the most important book in the Bible because in it, Paul goes deeply, deeply, deeply into the great doctrines of the Christian faith. If you study and know the book of Romans, you will understand at a very deep level the Christian faith. There's a lot I could be preaching on this morning. We had the Republican Convention and a lot of political activity that has implications over in the spiritual, moral, faith world. We've had terrorist activity again this week. Lots of current events that would have a lot of interest. And I'd love to preach on them. On the other hand, I started this series with this thought in mind. I read a book by Dr. Criswell early in my ministry as a pastor, and he encouraged preachers to preach through books of the Bible, to preach expositorily, to take a text, a verse, a paragraph, a portion of the Scripture, a chapter, and uh, expose that to the people. That's where that expository idea comes from, to expose this text, to submit yourself to the text. He said, you as a preacher can come up with a lot of good ideas about what you want to preach on, and probably ideas that a lot of people would be even more interested in than the text. But he said, submit yourself to the text, because everybody walking in that door, God knows what is the need of their heart. And he can take his word and he can use it in a better way than he can use your stories and your experiences. That the power to change and transform people's lives is not your story. The power to change people is the word of God, the gospel. And so I've tried to do that. I want you to understand what I'm doing. I'm trying to get you to think. My goal in this series is to get you to think deeply about the text. You, you may never hear another series of messages in depth on the book of Romans in your life. Very probable that many of you will not. I want you to think about your life. And I want you to think about your salvation. Don't blow that off and make a lot of assumptions that, oh, I'm okay, I don't need to worry about that. I want you to think deeply about the Christian faith. Do you, do you really understand the Christian faith, or are you just hanging on to a few little 
catchphrases and cliches that you picked up in church. And if you'll think deeply about it, it'll be life transforming. It has the power to change your life. Not my message, not my words, but the truth of God's word. You will notice there in verse number 20 that the word abound occurs three times. To abound means, according to Mr. Webster's dictionary, it means to be abundant or to be plentiful, that there's a lot involved in whatever is abounding. There's a great quantity of it. You will notice that the word abounded is attached to both the word sin. It describes sin in the universe. Sin abounded, Paul said. Where sin abounded, where it was plentiful, where sin was flourishing, where sin was at its high tide, its high water mark, where sin was plentiful and common all around us. There, he says, something else abounded. And what is that? The grace of God also abounded. The grace of God was plentiful. The grace of God was abundant. The grace of God reached its high tide and high water mark. But he even goes further and he says, and where sin was plentiful and abounded, grace did much more. Well, I'm glad he put that in there, aren't you? That grace is greater than our sins. That there's more grace than there is sin. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. And we've been singing about it. No wonder that uh, Sue could sing, the precious, unmerited favor of God. No wonder that John uh, Newton could write, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Not just grace, but grace is amazing in and of itself. Its character is one of amazement. And so I want you to think with me about grace this morning. I want to describe for you grace. Again, some of it you have heard. I trust that some of it will be very fresh to you, and we want to take a fresh look at grace. The first thing I want to say about grace is that grace is the unmerited favor of God. You know that. You've heard that. It means God gives us His goodness, His mercy, His favor, and we don't merit it. We have done nothing to deserve it. Another word that always comes to my mind as I define grace is it is unearned. I didn't do something that God then responds in grace as a reward for what I did. Grace is unearned. It is unmerited. It is also undeserved. Not a single one of us deserve God's favor. In fact, we deserve his punishment because we have so violated his laws and his character. So grace is, remember those three words. Always, when I define grace, I use them. Grace is unmerited. Grace is unearned. And grace is not deserved by myself or by anyone else. I want to tell you a story, but it's a hypothetical story. It hadn't happened. Probably won't. But it'll help us to imagine and put into a story form that some of the great principles of grace. 
Let's imagine that there is a very, very wealthy man who lives in Florence. He's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Perhaps, perhaps he's even a billionaire. He is exceedingly wealthy. He has plenty of money. He appreciates what this community has meant to him and the people of it. He's getting old. He's ready to die. He's got more money than he knows what to do with. So this man goes to Duke Power Company, and he gives him a check for millions of dollars. He says, here's what I want this money to be done. I want you to put a credit on everybody's bill in the Florence area. And I want them, I'm going to put in the newspaper and on the television, and I'm going to get the word out around town that anybody who is on your system, anybody who uses your power, that all they have to do is come over to the electric company's office, present their bill, and the clerk will stamp it paid. That's all they have to do. Only one condition. Just present the bill, and the clerk will mark it paid, and everybody that comes over there will receive one month payment on their electric bill. No matter how much it is, the person that has a $35 or $50 electric bill or the fellow that has electric bill over $1,000 for the month, no matter who it is, if they have an account with you, all they have to do is present their bill and it'll be marked paid in full for the current month. Now, that's a story of grace. And I tried to think very carefully and because I want to get the elements of grace in the story and make it very simple to understand. And that's exactly what God did. We all owed a sin bill. We, were, we had a debt to pay. And God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose goodness and grace and holiness and righteousness was so great that He could pay the bill for all of humanity. And He went to the cross, and He there did that. He satisfied the demands of God's judgment. It was as if every one of us were there at the cross, and we brought our sins, and in Christ, every sin was punished. The motivation for this was that He loved us, that He cared. His compassion, His mercy, His grace was manifested on the cross as Christ died. And now He said there's one condition. You present your sin bill. You come to me in faith. You trust me. And if you do, it will be marked paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's grace. Grace. Grace is God choosing to bless us rather than to abandon us in our sin. If Christ had not come, you and I would be abandoned in our sin and every one of us would perish, so teaches the Bible. There's a difference in grace and mercy. This was a blessing to me when I discovered this years ago. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, unmerited, unearned. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we do deserve. What we do deserve 
is punishment for our sins. And the Lord gave us both mercy. We don't get what we deserve, i.e. punishment, and we get what we don't deserve, God's love, God's grace, God's kindness to us. Secondly, I want to remind you that grace is expensive. Grace is expensive. This is where people get this really turned around. You see, grace is free to the recipient, but it's very, very costly to the one who donates the grace, who gives the grace. In our story, again, the wealthy man who made the payment for all of us at the power company. It cost him millions and millions of dollars. To us, it, might, it doesn't cost anything. We go and present our bill, and it's stamped, paid in full. But it was costly to the one who gave it, and it's absolutely free to those of us who receive it. Now, here's the thing. I hear people talking about grace and it being cheap, and I'm going to talk about that later in a moment. But grace may be free to the recipient. It is costly to the giver. The only way that grace can be cheap is if it's cheap if it's cheap to the one who gave it. In this case, the grace that we talk about in our faith would be the only way that grace could be cheap is if it were cheap to God himself. He's the donor. But think with me, it cost God his only begotten son. I can't even comprehend giving up one of my children's life for someone else who didn't deserve it. But that was the love of God. It was expensive for God. It cost him his son. I'd say to you also, it was expensive for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this planet and lived a sacrificial life, giving up the glories and the honor of heaven to come and be a simple carpenter and to live in poverty most of his life, his 33 years here on this earth. And then to go to the cross and be spat upon and cursed and riled, to be treated like no other man was ever treated, to be beaten where the literal internal organs of his body shone through, to suffer like nobody ever suffered, and then to pour out his blood for the sins of the world, to die, to take the spiritual and psychological weight of humankind's sin upon himself. Now, it was costly to God the Father. It was costly to the Son. By the way, this faith that we meet here today to celebrate was costly to a lot of Christian people down through the years. People died at the martyr's stake. They were torn apart by lines. They were burned. They were humiliated. They were persecuted in unbelievable ways. Their bodies were stretched and broken on the rack. You and I today have enjoyed such freedom, such blessing in this American republic that we have no comprehension the, the price that has been paid by people all over the world to pass the faith down to us that we take so lightly and so frivolously sometimes. Grace is unmerited favor, unearned and deserved. Grace is expensive. My, how much it costs, more than any diamond and all the gold of the world put together. 
Number three, I would say to you today that grace requires faith to believe that someone is going to give you grace. It requires faith to believe that someone who offers you grace will really give it to you. This illustration again, the man who put up the deposit for anybody in town to be able to have their power bill paid. Many people, if they heard that offer, if they read that in the paper, if the announcement came on television, just take your power bill up to the office of Duke Power and they're going to stamp it paid because this man's um, generosity and concern for the people of this community. I can hear people talking in their living rooms right now. They wouldn't believe that the offer was valid. They would think, ah, that's a scam. They'd never even show up to collect the benefit because of their own unbelief, the own hardness of their heart. You would hear things like, ah, there ain't no free lunch. Or you would hear somebody say something like this, that's just too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, I'm not going to waste the gas to go up there and present my bill. But then there would be others who would say, no, I believe that's a good faith offer. And I'll take my power bill, and I will always be grateful to that man for what he did. You see, it takes faith to believe that someone would offer you grace. It takes faith to believe that you can be saved through no efforts and no merits of your own, that through what Jesus Christ did in six hours on the cross, that he actually purchased salvation for you, and it costs you nothing. It just doesn't seem right according to human logic, does it? Because, you see, everything we've ever learned in our human experience is that we get rewarded for good behavior and we get punished for bad behavior. And so suddenly the Lord just turns that whole system upside down, this whole thing about acceptance-based performance. From the time I've been born, I'm, I'm judged on my performance. And so as a little boy at home, my mother and daddy said, you do this and you don't do that. And as I performed, well, then sometimes they would punish me and sometimes they would encourage me and bless me when I did it and, and reward me. And early on in life, I figured out something. If I do, do, do the right things, then I get rewarded for it. And if I do the wrong things, I get punished for it or I don't get any reward for it. And all my life, it's been a performance-based thing. Now, I open up my Bible and the Lord said, I don't care about your performance before you're saved at least. And then I went to school. And the teacher said, study this material, and you'll have a test on it. And if you know the material, you'll get an A or a B. And if you don't, you'll get an F or a D or whatever it was. A performance acceptance, if you will, by my whole culture around me. And then I go out into the world, and I get a job. And what do they want? They evaluate my job performance. Everything in life is based upon my performance what I do and what I don't do. Then I come to the Christian faith. I come to my Bible. I come to the church. I hear the preacher preach, and he says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. Not of yourself means it's not your 
accomplishments. It's not your performance that gains acceptance with God. It is faith that gains acceptance with God. And suddenly the whole system's turned upside down. And suddenly my mind is flooded with doubt. It can't be that easy. There's no free lunch. It's just too good to be true that Jesus could die on a cross 21 centuries ago, and I can just accept that and believe that and cling to that, and I'm going to get to go to heaven. And it just turns upside down my whole acceptance based upon performance value system, if you will. That somebody else, well, I love this phrase. I used it last week. That something that somebody else does is going to make me righteous with God. That's what the Christian faith is about. That something that someone else has done, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that what he did is the whole basis for whether or not I go to heaven and have forgiveness of my sins and a relationship with my heavenly Father. It's just contrary to everything that man teaches because all of our life we are rewarded for doing the right thing, not putting our faith or believing the right thing. So grace is unmerited favor, unearned and undeserved. Grace is expensive to the one who gives it, free to those who receive it. Grace requires faith to believe that God would actually do this for me, that he would care enough about me, and that he would pay the price, and that Jesus would do what he did for me, and then say to me, here's an offer, an offer of, it's free. I paid for this gift that I want to give you, and by grace, you are saved, and that not of yourselves, no performance required. It is the gift of God. A gift by definition is free. It is the gift of God. And then to emphasize it again, not of works, human works, not of works, lest if you could work for it and attain it, you would boast and brag about it. That's grace. One more thing. Grace truly understood is life-changing. If you truly understand grace, it's the most transformational, life-changing thing that can ever happen to you. Now, some people presume upon grace and use grace. They don't truly understand grace, or they don't care, one or the other. I don't know which. But grace truly understood is absolutely transformational, life-changing. In the case of our billionaire donor again to the power company, he makes that deposit, and I go, and my power bill is paid because of his grace. And now I have an unexpected bonus. My power bill was a hundred and some dollars last month. I've got an extra hundred and some dollars in my pocket. Over here is somebody, they were really struggling to make ends meet. They hear this news. Go to the power company, present your bill, and it'll be marked paid in full because of what this man has done. He's already paid everybody's bill that will go and receive the blessing. 
And here is some little lady. She's a widow lady. She is poor. She is striving to make ends meet. And she hears the news and she goes and with trembling hands, she says, is it really true that this man's going to pay my power bill? I'm I'm behind. And she hands it up and the clerk stamps it. Paid in full. Boy, life transforming. She has money now that she didn't have. It's Christmas in July. She got a big bonus. And now she's got money to go and pay that bill that she's been been unable to pay up until now. And now her heart is filled with gratitude. Clerk, will you give me that man's name? I must write him a thank you note. I must call him on the phone. I must do something to express my gratitude. I mean, decent people don't accept a gift that costs so much and not even respond. And so her life has changed. She's blessed. She has money she would not have had. She has a joy that she would not have had in her life. This woman has loyalty to someone she has never personally seen. She appreciates him and has gratitude to this man for what he did. She has even an affection. There's a bond formed. And she thinks, my, what a wonderful man. How I'd love to get to know him. All because of grace. Grace. I preached in Savannah this past Thursday night. And I have a friend there that uh, came to the service. He doesn't attend the church, but he came and, and the pastor and him and we went out and ate dinner afterwards, Norman, his wife. My friend is a single man. He's an old bachelor, and good night. He, I went to Russia with him back in 1995. He was on a trip to Russia. And uh, he's a commercial real estate dealer and very wealthy man, very successful man, 80-some years old now, still working every day and doing well. And on that trip to Russia... I remember well in a little village called Ratumpka, we met some people, and he met a young lady. And uh, he maintained uh, correspondence with her. I guess she was almost a child or a teenager at that point. Well, my friend is a big Rotarian. He is big in the Rotary Club. You can't be around him 30 minutes, and he's not talking about the Rotary. And so as we ate the other night, he was telling me, Bill, guess what happened? You remember when we were in Ratumpka and you preached in that little Baptist church? And I said, yeah. Yeah, Well, we met some young people there. And in Georgia, he said with great pride, we're the only state that does this. The Rotary gives college uh, scholarships to people. So I recommended this little girl. I'd maintain contact with her, and I recommended that they give her a scholarship. And I wrote her, and she filled out the paperwork, got the scholarship, And you know what? She came to Savannah, and two or three years ago, she graduated over here from Armstrong State University and got her degree. And while she was here, she met this young man, and she married him, and they have two beautiful little kids, and he went on and talked to Norma and I on and on and on and on about these children and about him going over to their house and eating and on and on and on, and he just wouldn't stop talking about this And he said, this girl said to me the other day, I want to thank you again for what you did for me. 
if it were not for your grace and generosity, where you set me up for this scholarship to come here and study, I would still be living in that little village in Rotumpka. And I wouldn't have an education. And I would never have met this wonderful man. And I wouldn't have these two precious little girls. And I owe so much to you. And here he is, an 80-some-year-old bachelor who has no family, but there's a bond. And they've become his family, I could tell. And there is this appreciation that's always flowing to him. He didn't tell me about how much money he was making. He didn't tell me about his last big commercial sale. He told me about two little girls that he goes to their house and they jump up on his lap and put their arms around him. And he says in his mind, if I hadn't extended grace, they wouldn't even be here. And there's such satisfaction in his heart because of it. And you know what I like to think? That my heavenly father looks down at me and at you with all of our imperfections and all of our failings. And he said, I'll see the benefit now of my son going to Calvary. And I see what a difference grace has made in the life of my children down there. Oh, I wish the whole world would come and get their bill stamped, paid in full. I wish that every soul on the planet would turn to me A lot of them won't believe that salvation is free and by grace. But those who do, those who do, my, what a joy to look at my children whose lives have been transformed and who are going to die someday and be with me in eternity for all of eternity. And I believe our Heavenly Father has great pleasure and great satisfaction and the reward of seeing his children who've accepted his grace and his transforming power in their life. But there's so much confusion about grace. It's so simple on the surface, but I'm going to tell you, you begin to dig down into God's grace and all of its implications, it can become extremely complex. I think first of how we've confused grace with legalism. Would you turn back to the next book, the preceding book, Acts chapter 15? And I want to point out to you some enemies of grace before I conclude today. And I think there's so much misunderstanding about the simple grace of God that I've been teaching to you on now for 30 minutes that grace is unmerited and unearned and undeserved, that grace is expensive to God but free to me, that grace requires faith and it's harder to believe than you might think it is in grace. And grace is truly under, if you truly understand it, is life transforming to you. But in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, there's a problem with grace. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised. Now, these men that came down from Judea, down from Jerusalem, they go to the new Christians and they say, 
Now, it's not enough to just believe in Jesus Christ. You've got to practice the Jewish rite of circumcision after the manner of Moses, or you cannot be saved. In other words, you've got to add something to grace for it to be valid. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, their big argument, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. This becomes a major issue in the church. Verse 5, and there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, it is needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses if they're going to be saved. And the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. What are we going to do about this? Is not the grace of God enough alone, or do we have to add some other regulations and requirements to it? And now we go to verse number 10. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, the yoke being the law, keeping the law in their minds for salvation? And then verse 11, mark it in your Bible. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And they nailed the door shut on that crowd who said, you've got to add something to salvation. And so we've got to be exceedingly clear in our thinking and never become confused with the fact that Grace stands on its own feet, and to add anything to it or take anything from it is to change the whole nature of grace. They wanted to, here in this case, to add requirements to God's grace. Paul later wrote an entire book of the Bible. I won't reference it this morning, but just note it in your mind. If you ever want to study this deeply, the book is called Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, and the entire book Paul argues and debates this issue and says, look, you do not need anything in addition to God's grace to be saved, period. Don't confuse grace. People today confuse grace and the Christian life, living the Christian life. People today confuse grace with discipleship. Now, every Christian ought to seek to become a disciple of Christ, but Is that required for salvation? No, the Bible doesn't say that. People today confuse grace with a dedicated Christian life. Remember, grace is always undeserved. It's always unmerited. No one here, the best among us, does not deserve salvation. God gives it to us freely And God gives it to us undeservedly on our part. There's a second thing that's going around that's really brought a lot of confusion about grace. Back in the 80s, there was a big debate swept across our country. And the debate was this. It was called Lordship Salvation. And the idea was that when the moment that you received Christ as your Savior, you had to also accept him not only as Savior, but as Lord, that every single part of your being had to be submitted to Jesus Christ, that salvation was contingent on an unconditional, total surrender of oneself to Christ in every area of life. 
In your personal life, every part of you had to be surrendered to his lordship. In your thought life, there couldn't be any area of your thought life that was not submitted to the lordship of Christ. In your family life, in your business life, you were not a Christian if you came and just received Christ and put your faith in him as we had always preached it, but that you had to have a total unconditional surrender of every part of your life to him. Now, there's no doubt about the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. The word Lord is a Greek word, kurios. And Lord there means simply the sovereign, the master, the boss, if you will, the ruler of our lives. And Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of history. He is Lord of the church. He's Lord of the future. Someday every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to be interesting to see some of these great world leaders, isn't it? Hit the deck. Hillary. Trump. Conservatives. Liberals. Good and bad. All of them that were so proud. Down. Jesus is Lord. Confess it. The atheist. The unbeliever, every knee, every tongue, Bill Monroe, hit the deck. Confess that Jesus is Lord. You're acknowledging who he is. I've even said it because it gets in our thinking. You need to make Jesus Lord. Stop. Hold on. You don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is already Lord. Whether you make him anything, you can't make Jesus anything. Jesus is Lord, period. He's absolutely sovereign. I know what people are trying to say, but I want to tell you this. If I had to depend upon an absolute unconditional surrender of every part of my being every day of my life, I don't know if it would be much chance for me. Do you? Not, not, I said, do you? I meant not about me, but I mean in all of our case, Right? I don't want you to say, yeah, that's right about you, but no. Is there anybody in here who could say there's ever been a minute in my life absolutely unconditionally surrendered to Christ in every single way, thought, word, deed, action? No, I don't think so. In fact, most of the New Testament was written to people saying to them, you need to learn to be or to, to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what most of the epistles are about. On the other hand, our Lord said this, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? And if you have come to him in saving faith and put your trust in him, I can tell you this, down inside you, that new nature wants him to be Lord. And it bothers you when you find those areas that he that you've held back from his lordship. There's also confusion about repentance. People confuse repentance with grace. The Bible's very clear. Repentance is a requirement, a necessary part of salvation. However, the word repentance in the Bible means 
a change of mind. It doesn't mean that you had to be real sorry about your sins. And it sure doesn't mean that you had to say, you know what, I'm going to give up all my sins so I can get my act together and trust Christ. It's not repentance. Repentance is to change your mind about Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. Repentance is to change your mind about sin, that sin will take you into eternity without Christ to punishment forever. It's to change your mind about yourself and say, there's not anything in me that's good enough for heaven. I am totally dependent on what he did. People get confused with what we call a head knowledge of the gospel. Everybody agrees that you have to intellectually understand salvation, but understanding the word faith does away with that one. People intellectualize the gospel. We say, well, they just intellectualized it. They grew up in church and they believe the facts, but they never have really trusted Christ. If we really understand the word faith as it's used in Scripture, it just simply means this. To have faith in someone is to rely on them, is to depend upon them, is to trust their word, is to rest upon their word. And so when we talk about people having a head knowledge, let's don't get confused. If we truly understand what faith means, it means trust, to rely upon, depend upon what Jesus did at the cross. And one other thing that I'm through. There's a big growing movement today that we call the hyper-grace movement. Some people call it easy believism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the first one to use the term cheap grace. He talked about cheap grace. And he said, cheap grace presumes upon God's grace and God's love. It wants the benefits of salvation without any following of the Lord Jesus Christ. That people grow up in church, make professions of faith, get baptized, catechized, and whatever, go through the rituals of the church, but without any heart at all for the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to go to heaven, but they don't want to live for the Lord. It's just salvation to them is just a, a, a free pass to get you to heaven, but no feeling of responsibility of living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, we see so much of that today, don't we? We see people, I hear people just make a profession of faith in Christ. Make a profession. And then they implied it's like you can live any way you want to live. No, the grace of God that brings salvation, that the Bible talks about, always has this idea of making us new creatures in Christ. Jude talked about turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. I see so much of that in American Christianity today. Turning the grace of God into immorality. Using the grace of God as a license for people to sin. It's not the grace of the New Testament. Now, look up here at me. There's only one thing can keep you out of heaven, and that's sin. And there's only one cure for sin. 
The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. It's all you need. And the Bible says, whosoever will call upon the Lord, he'll be saved. The Philippian jailer fell down before Paul thinking he was going to die, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say any of the things that you hear so much today. One word, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly believe in the sense that I described. You rely on, put your trust in, faith in him, rest in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's grace. Our heads are bowed. Oh, Lord.